True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The man smiles as he walks down the street, away from the prison that's held him for the last few years. Do the crime, do the time, he thinks. Sometimes, it's not always how it works, though. He's going to move far away now, far from his past, from the people who know him, and far from the other one, the one they forgot about. If he simply blends in, he's sure he can continue soon. It's just a matter of time. He's gotten away with it once. He can do it again. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 111, The Serial Crimes of Andrew Yordan. Now it's my monthly tip about what to watch on CVS Justice, the home of true crime on TV. And this week sees the channel premiere of Cold Justice, back for a fourth season. Enjoy a brand new episode every weeknight at 8pm, following former Texas prosecutor Kelly Ziegler and her team of investigators as they re-examine more unsolved murders. You can watch Cold Justice Season 4 on DSTV Channel 170 and StarSat 222 from Monday to Friday until Tuesday the 11th of April. And a huge thank you to CBS Justice for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank those listeners who've supported the show through Patreon or PayPal recently. A huge thank you goes out to Maria Dupria. Red, Dominique Kutsia, Philippa Yard de Villiers, Cody C, and Beverly Fuller for your support on Patreon, as well as Olivia Lamshank for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to get an exclusive episode every month, as well as ad free versions of every week's episode, Check out the link to Patreon in the show notes and sign up for a minimum of $1, which is about the same price as a loaf of bread right now. You can also support the show by supporting our sponsors, including King Online and Wallpaper Online, by using the discount code TCSA10 or True Crime respectively when purchasing on their websites, and you'll get a 10% discount too. Or you can support me as an individual creator by purchasing my book, Samurai Sword Murder, in hard copy, ebook, or audiobook formats, as well as the audiobook I narrated for Yana Marks of the Krugersdorp Cult Murders. Non-financial support is just as valuable, so please share and invite your friends to listen. There are far too many cold murder cases in South Africa. Almost on a daily basis, I'm contacted by the family members of victims who lost their lives to a murderer many years ago, and they never saw justice in their cases. The reasons for this vary. Sometimes it's a really baffling case. Sometimes the perpetrator is obvious, but there's just not enough evidence to get them in a courtroom. 
and sometimes in what I feel are the saddest cases. The victim has just been completely let down by the police. I will say that before I started this podcast, I had a far poorer view of the SAPS than I do now. I know that probably sounds counterintuitive, considering some of the shockingly egregious failures of policing I've covered on this podcast. But it has really been the good police officers. The officers who either just do their jobs to the best of their ability, go well above and beyond what is expected of them, and sometimes even risk or lose their lives to see justice done. That has changed my mind. Today's case is an exhibition of both of these extremes. And it's also a story about the parents and loved ones of a victim who refused to give up, and how, thanks to them, sometimes justice does what it's supposed to do. In researching this case, I used the book Stellenbosch Murder Town by Julian Janssen, several media articles, and the judgment from the offender's appeal. So let's get into episode 111, The Serial Crimes of Andrew Jordan. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. The town of Stellenbosch is quite a contrast between the haves and the have-nots. In its beautiful setting, there are estates and farms, predominantly wine farms in this region, that house some very wealthy people. And in amongst those exhibitions of uber wealth are the very ordinary people of Stellenbosch, just trying to make a living. Many of these people work on the wine farms in the area. The work is hard and seasonal, and although some benefit from housing on the farms they live on, Many live from harvest to harvest, putting food on the table and trying to build a future as best they can. Felicity Saliers was one such woman. The 31-year-old had been a seasonal worker on the wine farms for most of her adult life. It was how she fed and educated her three boys of 13 years old, 9 years old and the baby who was just 14 months. Felicity lived in Flottenbach, a suburb of the Cape Winelands. She shared a home with her friend called Magdalena Papir, and her father, Johannes, Mother Mary, and sister Dalian all lived in their own abodes nearby. The community they lived in was tight-knit. The residents went through their ups and downs together, and slept soundly in the knowledge that each of their residents was there for the right reason could be trusted, and when someone stepped out of line, it would be corrected. But in 2007, the community Felicity lived in came to realize that they were not quite as tight-knit and secure as they thought they were. On Monday the 28th of May 2007, Felicity was at home with her three sons and her housemate Magdalena. They were making coffee and had run out of sugar, 
and Felicity said she was going to pop to her sister's house to get some. The circumstances around what happened after Felicity left her home that night remain shrouded in mystery. She did make it to her sister Delian's house, but Delian says she left without any sugar. At some point, she appears to have popped into a 21st birthday party in the area, but even that is up in the air, because witness interviews in this case were so poor when it happened, and the only information we would eventually have that pointed to the scenario came from a rather unreliable source. Felicity Celiers never returned home, though. Her family immediately knew something was wrong by the morning of the 29th. It was a work day and a school day, and there was no way Felicity would just leave her children, especially her 14-month-old baby, to fend for themselves. It would be on this day that Felicity's father, Johannes Celiers, began a journey of untold pain. And although in the first moments he'd set out to mobilize a search for his missing daughter, he thought she would be found in hours and all would be resolved, his journey would take more than a decade to come to any conclusion. Johannes Siliers is a man with as many contrasts within him as the area he lives in. His appearance would have you thinking he's nothing more than a sedate, kindly grandfather and father, a man who's worked in manual labor his entire life to support his family, and since becoming legally disabled due to his ill health, enjoys the small pleasures of the quiet life in a beautiful setting. But when you look a little closer, you might notice the tattoos on his now-wrinkled skin. The ink was placed on him in the 1970s when he found himself in prison for murder. Johannes was sent to jail for killing an escaped prisoner who'd broken into his mother's house with an axe and attacked her. Johannes heard the attack and managed to wrestle the axe away from the man, which he then used to hack the attacker to death. The judge decided that his actions had gone far beyond the limits of self-defense or protection of his mother, and he sentenced Johannes to prison time. Inside, Johannes became a bandit, which is a Afrikaans word for bandit. The word was used in the 1970s to describe a group of people, an almost gang-like structure in the Western Cape prisons. When he got out, he met and married his wife Mary, and started a family, and his bandit years were left behind. The tenacity he developed during that time, though, and the deep sense of protection for his loved ones that had put him in prison would continue to surface throughout his life, and never more so than the day he got the call to say his daughter was missing. Felicity's sister, Dalian, had reported her sister missing at Stellenbosch police station soon after their initial searches turned up no sign of the woman. The officers took the report but it was clear that they believed Felicity was probably on a bender somewhere and would emerge eventually. Sadly, she would emerge, but not in the way police thought she would. On the 30th of May, two days after Felicity had gone missing, a man walking to work through the vineyards of Longlands Farm between Stellenbosch and Kales Raffia made a grisly discovery. He found the body of a half-naked woman, 
clothed only from the waist down in a denim skirt, but with that hiked up to her buttocks. There was a large stone beside her head, which was covered in blood. She had extensive head wounds, and nearby the man saw a half-dug hole, which he thought at the time looked like someone had been trying to dig a grave. The man alerted farm workers and police were called. Soon Johannes Siliers was receiving the telephone call that would change his life and set his course for the next ten years. Police believed that the body in the vineyard was Felicity, and the grieving father's own identification in the mortuary later that day would confirm the suspicion. Felicity Siliers had been murdered. An autopsy would later reveal that Felicity had been raped twice. She had been strangled, likely manually by the perpetrator's hands, and then she'd been bludgeoned to death, very likely with the rock that had been found beside her head. The attacker had left his DNA behind on and in Felicity when he'd raped her, and a sample of this was recovered through the means of a rape kit, which was then sent to the laboratory for analysis and future comparison to any existing offenders or future suspects. The investigating officer on the case, Kurs Brandt, interviewed a few of the people that lived in the same community as Felicity. One man, Andrew Jordan, who was a friend of the Saliers family and had helped in the search for Felicity, told the investigator that he had seen the woman on the night she disappeared. He said he'd met up with Felicity at a 21st birthday party in the, in the community that night and they'd gone back to his house and engaged in consensual sex. They'd then returned to the party, and he'd lost track of her after that. He'd assumed she'd gone home. Andrew Jordan was 22 years old. He would later say that his childhood had been extremely difficult, and his mother was abusive, resulting in him developing alcoholism and an extremely dysfunctional way of interacting with women. After this case was resolved, a spokesperson for the NPA would claim that at this time Jordan had been out on parole. There is no information available about any prior crimes he may have committed, and I actually tend to think the spokesperson was confused by the timing of the various cases that would, that would eventually be at play here. When Felicity disappeared, Jordan had been living in the community for about a year. He'd become well-known to many there, and not always in the greatest of lights. Many, especially women, described him as a pest. He regularly harassed women for sex, and when he drank he became belligerent and aggressive. One would think that at this stage Jordan's admission that he'd both had sex with Felicity and been one of the last people to see her combined with his behavior in the community toward women and known aggression when he consumed alcohol, would have been enough to shoot him right up to the top of the suspect list. But sadly, that would not be the case. In fact, two other suspects were arrested for Felicity's murder on far weaker grounds. Their DNA was compared to the sample from her rape kit, and when they didn't match, the men were released without charge. For some reason, 
No one thought to compare the DNA of the man who'd admitted having sex with her to that sample. Many of Felicity's loved ones believed that her murder became old news, and possibly not as high a priority for police in Stellenbosch when just a few months after her murder, another body was found. When the body of 17-year-old Samantha Sauls was found, however, the Ciliers were deep in a double wave of grief of their own, and much of the news passed them by. In October 2007, five months after Felicity's death, her 14-month-old son had succumbed to an extended bout of gastroenteritis. He passed away in hospital surrounded by his devastated grandparents, who had now lost both their child and their grandchild in the space of five months. The Celiers believed that their grandson had died from grief. The boy was extremely attached to his mother and had, of course, not been able to understand why she hadn't come home to him. Johannes Celiers says that his grandson had fallen ill soon after Felicity's death and the child's emotional distress at the loss of his mother had interfered with his healing process. A very simple gastrobug which should have been entirely treatable, ravaged the child's body until he simply refused to eat anything at all. And while the Celiers did hear through the grapevine that another body had been found, they wouldn't really come to understand how important this discovery was to Felicity's case until much later. 17-year-old Samantha Sauls was last seen at the home of her parents in Flottenbach. Her uncle had been home that day and seen her walk off with a family friend, Andrew Jordan. He recalled calling out to Sam to ask her if she was okay. He knew the girl didn't like Jordan as he constantly made sexual advances toward her and she'd always turned him down. But on that day... He said Sam had been drinking wine with friends and she turned around and called back to him to say she was fine and your Don was going to walk her to her boyfriend's house and he was going to buy them some more wine on the way. Her uncle went back into the house, hoping she would be okay. Samantha had been living quite independently for some time. She was far more mature than most 17-year-olds. He was sure she could handle herself. When Samantha didn't come home that night, though, and her boyfriend said she'd never arrived at his house, her disappearance was reported immediately, along with the information that the last person seen with her was Andrew Jordan. When Samantha's body had been found, she had severe head wounds, and the pathologist would confirm that this had been the cause of her death. She'd also been raped, and she was found partially nude. Stellenbosch police brought Jordan in for questioning, and he eventually admitted that he had killed Samantha. He claimed that the sex had been consensual, but they'd both been very drunk, and halfway through the act, she'd started to scream. He claimed that he'd been afraid people would think he was raping her, and had reached for a nearby rock and hit her on the head. He claimed he just wanted to knock her out, but the blow had killed her. Now, if you, like me, 
are sitting there going, well, okay. He's confessed to this one, and Sam's murder is so similar to Felicity's, surely they're going to ask him about her next. Well, no. Unfortunately, they did not do that. In fact, despite it being the same suspect, the same MO, the same cause of death, and her body being found less than two kilometers from the first murder just a few months before, Felicity Cilia's name did not come up even once. Unfortunately, there's not a ton of information available about Samantha's case or the trial of Andrew Yordan for this crime. I am sure that they would have taken his confession into account in terms of the length of his sentence, as well as probably his youth and the fact that, at least according to that court, this was his first violent offence. I don't know whether they actually believed his story of it being an accidental killing and the rape being consensual, but Andrew Yordan was given eight years in prison for murder. Eight years. If this was in 1950, I would fully understand that pathetic sentence. But this was 2007, long after the Minimum Sentences Act was implemented. I really wish I could find more information on this trial and I will carry on digging because I, I honestly cannot fathom how this happened and it's an absolute travesty of justice for Samantha Souls. Once the wave of grief had started to ebb slightly for the Celiers family, Johannes realised that the man he believed had killed his daughter had done it again. By this time, Jordan was already in prison, and it seems that no one at Stellenbosch police station was very keen to listen to this old man's ramblings about how they had a serial killer in prison who'd only been convicted of one crime. For years, Johannes went back and forth between investigators, begging them to reopen his daughter's case and seriously look at Jordan as a suspect. Although Jordan was incarcerated, we didn't have legislation in place at, at that time to force the Department of Correctional Services to take the DNA of all offenders convicted of violent crimes. That legislation has just been permanently reinstated quite recently, but at that time, even though Felicity's rape kit sample was in the system, there would have been nothing for it to flag against because your dance wasn't in there. Over the next decade, Johannes would speak to almost every member of Stellenbosch Police Service. The original investigator had long retired, and it seemed that each of his successors either had far too much on their plate, or they simply weren't interested in resurrecting a long, cold case with all the hassle that came with it. That was, of course, until one of Johannes's regular phone calls reached the ear of one Sergeant Calvin Moses. For the first time, someone in a uniform was actually willing to listen to Johannes. Moses sat down with the man in his modest home as he explained all the similarities between Samantha's murder and Felicity's murder. And in the years since his daughter had died, Johannes had not let Andrew Yordan out of his proverbial sights. 
He knew that by 2018, when Sergeant Moses sat down with him, Yudan had already been released on parole. And he also knew exactly where he was living. I have to wonder if some of Johannes's old instincts hadn't kicked in here. The man had done a better job of hunting down and keeping an eye on Yodan than the DCS had. The parole officer who was supposed to be watching the violent criminal had no idea where he was, but Johannes did. He told Moses he would find him in a town called Zor, in the Southern Cape. Moses took the information and noted it down. Before he approached Yodan, though, he wanted to have his ducks in a row. It seemed ludicrous to Moses that the DNA had never been tested against Jordan, but in order to do that now, he would have to physically take a sample from the man, and he didn't want to alert him just yet. Instead, he began by pulling the dust-covered docket from the archives at Stellenbosch Police Station and essentially reinvestigating the case from the moment Felicity had gone missing. Although he would never say it, the fact that this case had been so clearly blundered by the initial investigating team probably did not instill much faith in him that he could rely on anything else they'd done. So he started to interview everyone who knew Felicity from scratch. The location of Felicity's body had never been recorded on the docket, so Johannes had to take Moses there. Johannes also had a pack of articles he'd kept from newspapers about both Felicity and Sam's murders, and an added report he'd written by hand about a woman who said she'd been attacked by Jordan between the murders of Felicity and Sam. The woman had managed to escape, but his story had been eerily similar to what was known about how the two women had lost their lives. All of this was handed over to Moses who now had a growing docket of valuable evidence against Andrew Yordan. Finally, the point came where Moses was comfortable to arrange for police in the Southern Cape to pick up Yordan and take a DNA sample from him. The man was not immediately arrested, but Moses was able to get a warrant for the collection of his DNA, and Southern Cape police watched him very carefully as that DNA went off for processing to ensure he didn't run there'd been none too pleased to discover they had a convicted and paroled violent murderer that had been living in their community without their knowledge, and they were more than happy to ensure that as soon as they got the word that the DNA was a match, they could get this man out of their jurisdiction and send him back to the Western Cape. Until then, they were going to make sure he didn't hurt anyone under their watch. The days ticked by, and eventually Moses's badgering of the lab paid off. The results were in, and the DNA from the rape kit from Felicity Celiers was a perfect match to the DNA of Andrew Yordan. Sergeant Moses travelled to the Southern Cape himself to make the arrest. During questioning at Ladysmith Police Station, Yordan claimed he hadn't even been in the area on the night. He claimed he'd been in Eersterafia with Felicity's sister's husband. The man denied this, saying he was home that night because he remembered Felicity coming by for sugar. Of course, Sergeant Moses didn't open with his strongest hand. He had simply told Jordan that they had reason to believe he was involved in Felicity's murder. Nothing more than that. 
Only after Moses told him that his DNA had been matched to her did he actually start to talk. First, he went back to the story of consensual sex, but then, under warning of his rights from Moses, he said the following, quote, That night, I followed Felicity from a party. She was too strong for me, and I picked up a rock and threw it at her as she lay on the ground. I raped her as well. End quote. Andrew Jordan was charged with the rape and murder of Felicity Siliers. Her long-suffering father, Johannes, was coming out of church that Sunday when he was surprised to see a familiar face in the parking lot. Sergeant Moses had become a good friend to him, and he was pleased to see the young man had a wide smile across his face. The two men greeted each other with a hug, and Moses told Siliers the news he'd been waiting ten years to hear. Andrew Jordan had been arrested and charged with Felicity's murder. For a long time after that moment, Johannes says he doesn't remember much. It was almost like the moment he was told his daughter was dead, but with the opposite emotion. Over the years, he and his wife had struggled to raise their two surviving grandsons. Both boys had deep emotional scars from their mother's murder, and both had fallen into substance use disorders. Johannes just wanted Andrew to pay for the lifetime of pain he'd caused by his actions that night. And now, it seemed he just might. One of the things that a victim's family experiences that we don't always think about is the expense and time they have to contribute to attending these long, drawn-out trials. Of course, they want to be there. For many, even though it's devastating to have to listen to the often traumatic details of their loved one's murders, the trial is an important part of the healing process. Many victims' family members want to face the perpetrators. They want to be able to represent their loved ones in a court of law. But this takes money and time. For most, it means having to take leave from work, often unpaid. Some have even had to resign from their jobs if their employers are not sympathetic to their situation. It means paying for petrol and parking and food, sometimes accommodation. For those without their own transport, it's an even bigger kettle of fish. And for people from under-resourced families like the Celiers, it sometimes becomes an insurmountable obstacle. Because of the seriousness of the case, Jordan's trial was set to take place in the Western Cape High Court, 50 kilometers from Stellenbosch. The Celiers were surviving on Johannes's disability grant, and whatever their surviving children could contribute. There was no way that Johannes could get to Cape Town every day for the trial and navigate all of the delays that inevitably come with such processes. So after a decade of pushing for justice for his daughter, Johannes had to make do with updates through the media and from Sergeant Moses when he attended. But as witness after witness was called in the Western Cape High Court before Judge Lister Nuku, time eked closer to a verdict and possible sentencing, and Johannes had promised himself and Felicity that come hell or high water, he would be there for that.
Advocate Mbulelo Koti for the state was understandably a bit shaken right at the beginning of this case when Yudan's warning statement he'd made to Moses was thrown out of court and not admissible as evidence. The judge found that the statement contained information that was tantamount to a confession, which of course it did. And as such, Sergeant Moses should have followed the protocol for a confession to a magistrate. Yudan also alleged that, that he'd only given the statements after he'd been assaulted by police. Now, I feel like a bit of a stuck record when I say this, because honestly, I think every time a violent murderer confesses, he retracts it and claims it was beaten out of him. Either every police officer in South Africa has itchy fists, or violent murderers are also selfish liars. You're welcome to decide which you think is true, and I know which one I think is more likely. Despite this piece of evidence being thrown out, the state presented 14 witnesses, among them the forensic pathologist who did Felicity's autopsy, police officers, and members of the Flottenbach community. Although Jordan refused to testify in his own defense, which is of course his right, his plea statement did contain information that would be used against him. And when Sergeant Moses testified, he was able to place on the record that despite admitting to having had sexual contact with Felicity in 2007, Udon had then changed his tune in 2018, and then changed it again when he found out about the DNA. In 2019, Johannes Siliers travelled to court for the first time. It was verdict day, and a solitary tear trickled down his cheek as the judge found that the DNA and circumstantial evidence combined meant that they had no other choice but to find Andrew Jordan guilty of both murder and rape. A few months later, in October of that year, as he commemorated the passing of his baby grandson 12 years before, Johannes Siliers listened as Judge Nuku gave Andrew Jordan life in prison for the murder of Felicity Siliers plus 10 years for her rape. Johannes beamed after the sentence was handed down. His efforts had not been for nothing. And finally, he'd been able to keep his promise to his daughter. He wondered out loud, though, how much of a difference this would really make to his life. So much of the damage had already been done. His grandson struggled with substance use disorders daily. His own health had deteriorated dramatically. But at least, he said, this was one less thing on his plate. He could now forget about Andrew Jordan. In 2021, Jordan attempted to appeal his sentence. He claimed that the judge had not taken his mitigating factors into account when deciding on his sentence and that his alcoholism and childhood trauma should have been taken into consideration. He claimed that a life sentence at 34 years old gave him little chance at rehabilitation, and that he didn't pose such a major threat to the community. The appeal court actually agreed that perhaps the minimum sentence could have been deviated from, but they also found 
that your don had actually not presented the required evidence for this in the sentencing phase. So they could do absolutely nothing about it at that point. Now, this really bothers me because what is not being discussed here is the fact that this man is a serial offender. If the original investigator had done his job back in 2007, Yodan would have been tried for both Samantha and Felicity's rapes and murders together. The investigative psychology unit could have got involved. They could have presented evidence to show that the similar fact evidence between the crimes showed that Yodan is a dangerous serial offender. If that had happened, the fact that he was an alcoholic and had a bad childhood would have made zero difference to the sentence. And although I'm really glad he has been given life and and will only be eligible for parole in 2044, it is that very eligibility that scares the you-know-what out of me. Because if nothing changes in our current parole system, Yodan's prior crimes will not be taken into account. The parole board will not know he is a serial offender. They will not know that the same rules should apply as to other serial offenders. There is a frighteningly high chance he will re-offend. And he'll only be 59. This is a story about the power of a father never giving up. It's a story of a cop who did a damn good job and should be proud of what he achieved. But it's also the story of how much damage can be done when people tasked with protecting the community don't do that. Yodan was living in the Southern Cape on parole for Samantha's murder for almost two years before he was arrested again. I have to wonder how many women he harmed there during that time. If he'd been arrested and convicted in 2007, life would have been very different for the Cilia's family. Maybe Felicity's youngest son would have still passed away. And really, that's on your darn as far as I'm concerned. But if Johannes and his grandsons hadn't had to live with the injustice of knowing that Felicity's killer had got away scot-free on her murder, how different could things have been for them? That is the legacy of that initial poor investigation. And of course, Udon's own violent actions. And that legacy will now continue. On and on, through the lives of Felicity's two sons. Through their children's lives, if they have any. And in 2044, it might just start up all over again with a new set of victims. I've tried to figure out what might have happened that night. Why Felicity might have been swayed from her path of getting sugar and going home to her sons. And all I can think is that perhaps on her way to her sister's house, she'd encountered your Don, who told her about the party. Perhaps she decided to just pop in there for a drink and fetch the sugar on her way back home. I do think that your Don's statement that wasn't allowed in court is correct. She didn't go with him anywhere. 
He waited for her to leave, and then he followed her like the hunter of people he was. He tracked her and stalked behind her in the shadows. And as she walked through the vineyards as a shortcut to home, to her three boys, he pounced and savagely murdered her. And there's another thing we need to understand here too. 17-year-old Samantha Souls did not have to die. If police had arrested Jordan after the murder of Felicity, Samantha would still be alive. And then, to add insult to injury, the man was given such a pathetic sentence for her murder and rape. If it wasn't for Johannes Saliers, who was no angel in his own right, but a man who had, at the very least, stood for everything that was right for most of his life, Andrew Jordan would still be roaming the Western Cape. Felicity's docket would still be gathering dust in a filing cabinet like so many others, and perhaps this is what we can take from this case. Cold never means closed. It never means unsolvable. Sadly, it may take a ton of effort from the loved ones of the victims combined with an investigator who's actually prepared to do more than push paper. But it is possible. The justice we've seen in this case may be slightly problematic, but it's far more than what would have happened if everyone had forgotten about Felicity. That, though, was not going to happen. Not on her dad's watch. Felicity Siliers, Samantha Souls, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 111, The Serial Crimes of Andrew Yordan. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. 